You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. Last week, the United States Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the landmark ruling that established the constitutional right to abortion back in 1973. Many people, of course, are troubled, uh, women in particular, feminists in particular. Why did this happen? What does this mean for American women? How do we move forward? There are many questions. Uh, the debate rages on. On today's show, I speak with Mary Lou Singleton, a family nurse practitioner and midwife. Mary Lou is a friend uh, and someone that I have worked with and conversed with for a number of years now, um, who, who knows much more about this topic than Many people I know, in my opinion, including, you know, the history of, of abortion and how we came to this place, how we came to this place in this debate and so on and so forth. Hi, Mary Lou. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm looking forward to talking to you, despite the fact that we are living in, in troubled times right now. Hi, Megan. It's great to talk to you. I'm, I always enjoy talking to you and having a, a beacon of, of like-minded thinking in these crazy times. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wish that our podcast was like five hours long every week, <laughs> just me and you. <laughs> um, for those who don't know who you are, can you uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your, your background? Sure. Um, I'm Mary Lou Singleton. I'm a midwife and a nurse practitioner, an advocate for women. Um, I guess for the purposes of this conversation, I, you know, I, I'm a reproductive rights activist. I have sat on the boards of directors of the Midwives Alliance of North America, the Stop Patriarchy Abortion Rights Freedom Ride, the Certified Profession, the uh, National Association of Certified Professional Midwives, and of the on the board of Wolf as well. Yeah, I I fight for women's freedom. So, as we all know, Roe v. Wade was overturned um, very recently. I wonder if you have any insight into why this happened. I mean, aside from the obvious that there was a vote, you know, what what happened leading up to this decision? Do you feel like there were mistakes that were made um was there a way to prevent this from happening you know what what <laughs> what who who do we blame <laughs> who do we blame who do we blame yeah mistakes have been made <laughs> historically uh, so I don't think this is surprising. The anti-abortion movement has been specifically stating that their their goal is is to overturn Roe versus Wade. They've they've been saying that for close to fifty years since since nineteen seventy three, and they have been working tirelessly toward that goal on multiple fronts. Um, and now they they got what they wanted, and we'll see what what happens after this. Um, so I don't think it's surprising. So what mistakes were made? Well, for one thing, there have been multiple times since Roe versus Wade was decided by the courts 
that the Democrats had both the White House and both houses of of Congress, and they could have codified abortion rights into law, so we weren't dependent on the opinions of the Supreme Court of whether or not whether or not women have a right to an abortion in the United States. So I'm I'm pretty mad at um, the Clintons and and Obama um, and even Biden in the current the the current Congress that nobody ever just codified this right for women so it could be reversed through the courts this way. What would a law like that look like? I've seen that criticism from a couple people and I've I've heard it from you also. Um, you know that it was a mistake to leave this up to a court decision. So what would a I mean, what would the law that you would like to see look like? That's a hard one because, you know, I'm I'm so done with politics that I'm just more and more of an anarchist every day. So it's hard for me to think that way. But I think a law would have to require some level of compromise. And I think a reasonable law would have been to to state that Women in the United States have a right to an abortion through 20 weeks of pregnancy, at which point um, abortion is regulated and accessible only for the, the health and life of the mother. I think most people could on most people on the pro-choice side could agree with that compromise as long as we have uh, you know, a clause that says after 20 weeks, if the mother's health or life are in danger. Uh, you could still get an abortion, but mm-hmm. that, that hasn't happened. Even a 15 week cutoff with an exception for the health and life of the mother afterwards would, would have worked, but they've never, they've never done this. Um, you know, I feel like abortion shouldn't be regulated at all. I think that the, the state does not own women's bodies and that, that regardless of the personhood of fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses, the state can't make one person be an unwilling life support system for another person. But if we're talking about legal compromises, something like that would have gone a long way to just get that into law and make that a federal right for women. So that never happened. Yeah. I mean, I just, I read an article by Helen Lewis in the Atlantic recently that I thought made sense despite the fact that like I agree with you I don't think that there actually should be limits on abortion I think that women should have the right to make decisions about their own bodies and you know the question of of late term abortion I think is almost a moot point because pretty much any woman as I understand it who's going to be having a late term abortion is going to be doing so for pretty devastating reasons, like there's a threat to her health or something, you know, terrible is going on because I just, (laughs) I don't see that being something that any woman would really want to go through. You know, if she really, truly didn't want to have a baby, she probably would have sought an abortion earlier on in the pregnancy. Exactly. But exactly. Sorry, go on. No, I, I agree. I think that many late-term abortions were actually wanted pregnancies where something's going really wrong. I mean, and, and the points that, one of the points that Helen Lewis was making was that, you know, we should be ready to make some compromises, which would probably sound something along the lines of what you're saying, like a cutoff after 
I mean, even 12 or 15 weeks, um, so long as there was an exception, um, if the woman's or the, or the baby's life is in danger. I mean, I don't know how you can pretend that it's a compassionate or humane thing to make a woman give birth to a baby that is going to die or have really, really serious health risks or, or, you know, you know, that's not going to be a viable pregnancy. Exactly. And I, I just, I, I hate even having this conversation because like you, I like, I don't, I, I feel like it's a psychological injury to women to have this debate at, the, at, at, about at what point in pregnancy do we stop being an autonomous human and become public property? It's, it's an exhausting conversation for those of us who view this from a women's autonomy perspective. Um, but I agree that at some level of compromise like that, like a 15 week ban, you know, 15 week cutoff with exceptions for the health and life of the mother after that would cover the vast majority of women's needs. You know, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, it's fair or better to hand the decision back to the States. Um, do you think that that's possibly true? Handing that handing the decision back to the states could, in fact, be a good thing, or maybe is like a pro democracy way of doing things. No, no more than I think that the pre Civil War um, standard in the United States of we'll leave slavery up to the states was appropriate. I think, I think women have the right to sovereignty. And that that should be a constitutional right for us. Do I think it's written into our constitution? No, because at the time of the writing of the constitution, women were property. Women did not. They they were the wards of men. They they didn't have constitutional rights. So of course the constitution doesn't give rights to women. And in in all the rights we we've won have come after the writing of the constitution. So no, I, I think that that's a really ugly way to to frame this of, oh, let's throw it back to the states. So in the majority of states, it will be illegal. And whether or not you have the right to control your own body depends on what state you happen to be living in. So, uh, you know, I think that it's it's very, all of these arguments that we hear about that are very cavalier about what's going to actually happen to women the the baseline reality of what's going to happen to women is abortion in many states will be illegal for the poor and a plane ride away for the rich. Yeah. I've heard and seen and some people have said to me that you know this is Trump's fault. Um ergo <laughs> everything's Trump's fault. Of course it is. <laughs> Trump is the worst thing that's ever happened to America. Um and right. <laughs> ergo it's also the fault of the people who supported Trump or voted for Trump, including women or feminists who supported Trump or voted for Trump. Um, I think that they're saying, you know, like if these particular, if Trump had never won the election in 2016, um, these particular Supreme Court justices wouldn't have been in a position to make this decision. Do you think there's any validity to that argument? Well, I think that, this issue has been a driving issue in presidential politics since Roe versus Wade, since 1973. My whole life, um, 
presidential elections always hinged on, you know, the Supreme Court and Roe versus Wade. No, I think this very much predates Trump. Um, there are a lot of shenanigans with the the Supreme Court and packing the courts. Um, I, before Trump was elected um, and Obama was still the president, there was a Supreme Court seat that was open and Obama was nominating Merrick Garland for that seat. And the Republicans in Congress refused to have confirmation hearings because they said they said he was a lame duck president or that he was a last it was the last year of his term. But this was before the presidential election. This was unprecedented to refuse to even um, have hearings about a Supreme Court justice that a sitting president had nominated. So the. um yeah, I mean, this is the Republicans' fault, right? This is the fault of the Republicans. They have been absolutely adamant of, that they're only putting justices on the bench that are we all knew were going to overturn Roe versus Wade. We we don't talk about the fact that the majority of the Supreme Court they're practicing Catholics. I think that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I think that um, the entire Supreme Court is made up of. I don't think we have a Protestant on the court. I think it's all Catholics and Jews and that the Catholics other than, than uh, Roberts votes according to the Catholic church on this issue. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting times. Mm-hmm. We've pretend we've progressed from like medieval days, but it's always just a, you know, new words to the same song. Right. Okay. And what about, so it's the Republicans fault, but what about, <laughs> <laughs> Since we're trying to find somebody to blame, um, you right, know, right. what do you like? How have the Democrats failed in all this? I mean, um, are you or do you think there's ways that the left and feminists have failed in this debate? You know, it's just such a tricky debate. I think I think the politicization of this issue serves a lot of people. I think there's a lot of disaster capitalism around abortion. I think that abortion rights being at stake get people to the polls. They they get people to send money to Planned Parenthood and NARAL and the ACLU. And I think on on a purely political level, neither side wants this issue to ever be be resolved. What are we going to vote about if we don't vote about abortion? We're certainly not going to talk about the war machine. We're not going to talk about U.S. imperialism. We're not. We're not going to talk about like this is the issue. Like this is the, this is the issue that so many people specifically vote on with, with the single issue voters. Um, so I, I don't think there's been a large motivation on the part of Democrats to resolve the issue either. Like I said, they had mo- many opportunities to codify this into law as a right for women federally, and and they didn't. Yeah. So here we are. Um, going to get ugly. I mean, we, it won't take long. We have um, 13 states that are that are that will have outright bans on all abortion, and we've got 26 states that are likely to ban it or have extreme restrictions. So the majority of the states are about to lose abortion rights. So it won't take long for the horror stories to start coming in and then for those to be politicized. Yeah. And there are a lot of horror stories. I mean, one of the things that you know, feminists fear the most is that we're going to go back to times which were not that long ago where women died because they were 
desperate to abort and they would do almost anything. And so they were having dangerous, unsafe abortions. But at the same time, one of the things that really frustrates me around this debate and these conversations and the conversation about abortion in general is that it's treated as though abortion started in like the 50s with coat hangers. Um, it's treated as though, you know, abortion is something that was sort of invented in modern times. And that's not true. I mean, as far as I understand it, women have been having abortions forever. Right. I, I agree with that. There's, you know, there's plenty of historical documentation from all over the world from the beginning of written language that people knew about abortion. People were performing abortions. There's an acupuncture point on the body called the abortion point. Um, you know, this, that's a 6,000 year old tradition. Women have always figured out how to end pregnancies and, and the state has always um, tried to control us through keeping us in ignorance about our bodies and, and um, making medicine something mystified that only professionals can have access to, right? Like this has been going on for a long time in various forms. Um, in the United States at the beginning of, of the founding of this country, obviously the indigenous, the many, many indigenous tribes that live in North America had indigenous midwifery, and I'm sure abortion was a part of that. And then when the colonists got here, only the very wealthy had access to physicians. And honestly, physicians didn't have great outcomes. We're talking like before people knew to wash their hands, before there were antibiotics, before blood transfusions, um, they were giving people mercury and killing people with bloodletting. So the physicians weren't really trusted. <laughs> the women were the healers and the midwives helped women with, uh, with regulating the menses, with bringing on a late period. Um, what we now know is abortion that was considered menstrual regulation at the time. So abortion was very common with the rise of, of industrial medicine in the 1830s, the AMA was formed. And one of the ways they went after all of their competitors was to criminalize abortion and this was used to get rid of most of the practicing midwives. Um, they also, you know, in many states passed laws that midwives couldn't attend births anymore either, but first they went after abortion. And then we end up with this situation where abortion's in the hands of men and abortion is underground and illegal. And that's when abortion becomes a lot more dangerous, in, in my opinion. And that's where you get um, women being exploited by greedy male abortion providers who, who um, you know, we have many stories, pre-Roe stories of women being raped by abortion providers, women being being treated horrifically by underground abortion providers. Um, when it left women's community, it became significantly less, less safe. Yeah. And, and when you talk about regulating menses, um, what does that mean exactly? What does that look like? There are herbs all over the world that are used to bring on a late period. These things are are fairly effective and and very safe as long as they're used early in the pregnancy and have been known all over the world of you know ways to to bring on a late period when a woman suspects she may be very early pregnant and just needs to bring on the, her blood. Um, that is 
probably historically the most common method. And then there are ways to stimulate the cervix. There are, um, you know, inserting catheters into the uterus, like different different techniques that are really not that complicated that women can learn and and help themselves and other women and early pregnancies. It's interesting because even many feminists now sort of poo-poo those those techniques. Um, and when you talk about them, people tell you that you're endangering women or that you're talking about like new age, like, you know, basically like witchy techniques, which you would think like <laughs> feminists would be in favor in, of witchy things, but not always the case. Um, <laughs> right, to, right. To end pregnancies, you know, there is this push to rely solely on the the medical establishment to deal with women's health um, and reproduction, as well as a reliance, a push to rely on on big pharma. You know, the same thing happens when you criticize the pill, when you talk about fertility awareness, the fertility awareness method, when you talk about withdrawal. I mean, I talk mm-hmm. about these things often because they actually do work. Like, so long as you're dealing with adults and trusted adults, you know, like men that you know and trust, like your male partner who isn't going to be like, oh, oops. Um, and right, right. we're not dealing with, with teenagers or, or men who don't give a shit about you or whether or not you become pregnant. I mean, these methods are effective. And if you say that, you know, People get irate, including feminists. I know. I think that, again, since since the mid-1800s, um, you know, we, we've been dealing with increasing medicalization of all of human life and a professionalization of um, what used to just be human culture, women's culture, and how we took care of ourselves. And people... All, you know, all of the, the old words I used to use to try to describe this are now so, um, they're so cliched and overused. I, I was going to talk again about the, the colonized mind, but um, I think we, we have to step it back even further to really understand just how um, not free our minds are in terms of our ideas about medicine and our ideas about the just being a free human, free of a medicalized existence. So the dominant culture, including most feminists, are in this place where they believe, you know, birth is terribly dangerous, that um, withdrawal doesn't work, that, you know, women can't be aware of their own bodies. And and I would argue that's that's a, a very disempowering place to be. And that um, there's a lot of freedom in coming back to understanding that that we don't need professionals to um to keep ourselves from getting pregnant or to deal with, with an early pregnancy. We just need knowledge and, and wisdom and community. Yeah. And I mean, and that's not to say that, you know, like, uh, I mean, the medical establishment is great. Like I, I want the option to be able to go to a doctor and go to the hospital and, you know, take antibiotics if need be. Um, you know, and I certainly want women to have the option to access abortion in a clinic or in a hospital. Um, and right, I right. even like, despite the fact that I think like hormonal birth control is awful, i still want women to be able to access that if they're making an informed choice. And 
Um, and I'm frustrated by the, the binary argument, but I also don't know how we get around that because I think that people will argue, well, you know, any medical procedure is regulated. So how can something like abortion not be regulated? Well, Florence Kennedy, the, you know, wonderful, uh, firebrand second wave feminist, uh, she, she said there should be no more laws regulating abortion than there are regulating appendectomy. We don't have federal laws about appendectomy. We don't have, we don't have state laws about, about these medical procedures. The, um, you know, we, we have regulations and laws about who can practice medicine and what constitutes the practice of medicine. So, you you know, you can't practice medicine without a license. But within that, you know, the regulatory bodies make suggestions, but they don't regulate things down to every specific procedure. There's there's no state law about about hysterectomy. There's no state law about about brain surgery these things are regulated by the professions. Um, and in then the, you know, the hospitals are regulated in terms of what the safety things are, but you know, the abortion is healthcare. It, it is healthcare. And for women who want to access that through the healthcare system, it should be safely and readily available to them. I'm curious to know if the idea, I mean, you know, a lot of people on the right are sort of crowing about this and making what I consider to be ridiculous and, and crude jokes like, oh, the Democrats are just mad or the feminists are just mad that they can't kill babies as easily as they could before. Right. I mean, including like the Babylon Bee, which is annoying because the Babylon Bee can be funny. Um, right. <clears throat> right. But, uh, I mean, is that... Is that idea that abortion is killing a baby a new idea or has that been around for a long time? Like, where did that come from? Because I, I don't see it that way, but I also respect that some people do see it that way. I, of course, I don't respect that you're imposing your feelings and ideas about abortion on people other than you, <laughs> you know, like on other women, right. um, and you're, you know, impacting other women's lives in really serious ways because of these thoughts. But I mean, is there, yeah, where, where did that come from? How long has that been around? Well, in, in Europe, in the United States, a pregnancy wasn't considered real. Like the, there was no, um, no baby until what was called quickening, which is when you start feeling fetal movement. So before quickening in European common law, uh, abortion was legal and considered, you know, just, just something women do did to regulate the menses, just bring on, bring on a period. And that's getting, you know, quickening happens at 20 weeks. That's when most women start to feel fetal movement is around halfway into the pregnancy. So we're talking, you know, they were, um, they were allowing pretty late, late, what would be considered now later term abortions, you know, um, a midwife helping a woman end a pregnancy at 15 weeks. Definitely everybody's going to see the fetus that, you know, unquestionably the human organism begins at fertilization. You know, I'm, I'm that, like, yes, the human organism starts when a sperm meets an egg and 
if you're ending a pregnancy at 15 weeks, yeah, that's going to look like a baby. It's not a baby that can survive outside the womb. It's, um, but people weren't stupid. They, they knew what they were doing, right? They, women helping other women had, had witnessed many miscarriages and they knew about fetal development. But now, because women's lives were enclosed in women's culture and we had a certain level of privacy, um, we didn't talk about these things, people didn't really have that conversation. Now with ultrasound, everyone can see that the, you know, see the fetus in there, see that, yeah, this is a developing human being. Uh, unquestionably, it, I think it's a stupid argument for pro-abortion forces to say it's not, not a person, it's not a human being. It's a developing human being. Absolutely. My issue is you can't make somebody be pregnant against their will. You can't make someone stay pregnant if she doesn't want to be. That's a subjugation of the woman. Um, so I think that the advent of all of this prenatal technology and prenatal surveillance and being able to really see pictures that we're not supposed to see in terms of our evolution, right? We're like ultrasound is new um, and really watch that has, has made people project a lot more um, onto the, have made people more pro fetal rights. Like, it, you know, this is a baby in there and, they don't seem to understand how disrespectful and dehumanizing they're being to the woman in whom this baby is developing. And in Judaism, you know, this is an ancient discussion too about abortion. And, and, you know, I'm sure there are Jewish scholars that would disagree, but my understanding is that, that the majority of, of Jewish scholars believe that, um, and have believed for thousands of years that, Fetal life is important, and but the woman's life is more important because she's already here and a member of the community. So if a pregnancy is endangering her, including her mental health, it's it's the um, obligation to help her end the pregnancy. That it's it's necessary to help her end the pregnancy because fetal life is less important than the woman's life because the woman's already here and the woman is like the, the fetus can't live without the woman. Yeah, I mean, I've said that too. It's like, okay, well, if you if you want to ask me, then yeah, I think that an adult woman's life takes precedent over the life of a fetus. Absolutely, and they're they're just so disrespectful to, and and their their talking points get progressively more disrespectful. Now there's this whole thing of um, oh, because because now we have laws that you won't get kicked out of school or lose your job if you're pregnant. It's just a minor inconvenience to just stay pregnant, have the baby, and you can just leave the baby at the fire station because we have these safe haven laws and get on with your life. Like, it's just a minor inconvenience. It's so disrespectful. Or, oh, because maternal mortality is so rare, you just have to do this thing because someone else will die if you if you don't stay pregnant and then just give the, you know, just give the baby away, just give the baby up for adoption as though you're not ruining a woman's life by forcing an adoption on her. Right. And I mean, that impacts the child as well. And of course, there yes. can be good outcomes through adoption. But you know, I keep thinking like, you know, if a woman feels like she's not ready to or can't have a baby in her life, I assume there's good reason for that. And some of those reasons can be quite serious, you know, if this is like a, a woman who's a victim of rape 
including, you know, familial rape, like then the baby's potentially being born into an abusive household. You know, if she has an abusive husband and doesn't want to have a baby with this guy and be further attached to him for the rest of her life, that's a good reason. Like, I made that choice, although I didn't actually end up having to go through with the abortion because I miscarried um, before my appointment, um, which I was glad for because I actually didn't want to go through with the abortion, but I knew I had to because this guy was not somebody that I wanted to be attached to for the rest of my life. It would have been dangerous to me and possibly the baby. Um, and, you know, or if, you know, there's addiction, then the baby's being <laughs> born into a household where there's drug addiction. Um, and I just, I don't know... I don't know why these people think that would be a better outcome to bring a baby into that world and that life and to do that to the woman and the child. Uh, you know, I really try to get in their heads. I think they, they just really, really believe it's killing a baby. And, and that's just so horrifying to them that they, they can't see the woman they, and they can't see how they're, they're forcing their will upon this woman is in itself a human rights violation. Like they're so, they're so bent on trying to prevent this, what they view as a human rights violation. They can't see how brutal and barbaric they're being to women. It's, it's an impasse, but it's, and again, it's so politicized. It's so tied up in other belief systems. And I know both of us have moved, I think, I don't want to speak for you, but I've, I've moved to this analysis where I'm, I'm, again, I'm tired of these catchphrases. I'm tired of using words like patriarchy and capitalism and, and colonization. You know, I feel like these words have lost so much meaning, but really with this particular issue, this, this really gets down to like many of these men um, are very uncomfortable with the power women have to create humanity and that we make people and that, that men are somewhat powerless over that. Um, I recently, you know, I made the, I, I stupidly was arguing on Twitter and, um, and, you know, I just stated that ejaculation is not the same contribution to making a baby as pregnancy and childbirth. And this man got so, so angry at me and called me a man hater for saying that. <laughs> you're devaluing sperm you're dehumanizing right sperm. i am <laughs> meanwhile guys are like leaving that stuff everywhere they're giving it away you know like clearly like they well they don't care about their responsibility as much as women do obviously and i mean they don't technically have to but like i wrote about this recently and it's like you know people make the argument now People, I mean, in different ways, but people on the right make this argument, and I see radical feminists making the argument that, like, women should just not have sex if they don't want to get pregnant. Like, having sex with a man is a risk, so you should just not do it. And it's like, we don't tell men that. We don't say, you know, every time you have sex with a woman, you might get her pregnant and you might be saddled with a baby for the rest of your life, so maybe you should stop having sex unless you're ready to become a father. Right. No, we're not saying that at all. And the right wing men are never saying that. In fact, they kind of laugh in your face when you're like, well, maybe you should push for men not to be ejaculating and women who have not specifically agreed to carry any 
resulting pregnancies to term Mm -hmm. because women can't inseminate themselves. Mm -hmm. There's an old saying that um, I think it's Sheila Jeffries who said a woman can have as much sex as she wants and as many orgasms as she wants and not get pregnant unless a, a man has an orgasm. And an orgasm inside of her. Like, this is what I'm talking about. I'm like, I'm sorry, but the the withdrawal method is something that's very easy for men to do and a very easy way to prevent pregnancy, especially if you're paying attention to when you're fertile as well. Um, Absolutely. And, and that's also ancient. You know, the whole... Um, the whole tradition of Tantra was based on male continence and men not, not releasing their sperm unless they specifically wanted to make a baby at that time. Right. And, you know, and they they weren't into men ejaculating. I would say just don't ejaculate in women. <laughs> right. Exactly. What do you think that we can and should do now? You know, so in response to Roe versus Wade being overturned, where can feminists turn their energy? I've seen some feminists call for a sex strike, which I think is the most ineffective idea ever, personally, <laughs> because I know that half of American men are pro-choice, so I sort of don't understand how refusing to have sex with those men will change anything. Um, right. But, I mean, what do you think... What do you think feminists can do now? What do you think they should do now? You know, we're in such holistically totalitarian times. I think it's it's hard to even even sift through what to do. I think well the first thing I would say is is women should do what they're called to do, really, you know, look at the options. So if you're called to work politically, if that's if that's really where where you find a deep well of energy to motivate that activism, do that. If you're called to help with the abortion funds to help women travel from from states where abortion is illegal to get a legal abortion, and that's again, you know, find where where your motivation is, where that deep fire is, and do that. Right now, when I sit with myself, my energy is available and and I get fired up about sovereignty and helping women who want to be free learn their fertility cycles, learn to be very judicious about who they have sex with. I think that we need to talk about that not in a it's not a right-wing talking point to say casual sex has not been great for women, right? That I, I think you should be very discerning about who you have sex with. And I say this hypocritically because I wasn't in my youth, but it wasn't good for me, right? Like I, you know, I think like we need to to be sovereign in our sexuality and learn safe, learn how to prevent pregnancy and learn safe early abortion methods and learn what to do to take care of ourselves. That's where I'm finding a lot of energy right now, but I think that that's not the answer for everybody. I think that some people want to get proficient at um, teaching how to use uh, mesoprostol, a, a really safe medication that's very effective at ending early pregnancy, helping women get access to that. Um, really, there are lots of ways to plug in, do what you're called to do, and the work will get done. Mm-hmm. I do. I do think that's a good point, because I think that Sometimes I forget to say when I'm critical of this idea that women should just not have sex at all unless they're prepared to be mothers nine months down the road. 
Um, which is that I do think that women should be more choosy and more thoughtful about who they have sex with for a variety of reasons. One of those reasons being that you might end up pregnant and stuck with this guy. Um, but, you know, also because we have denied um, that sex is a bonding experience and that you might end up bonding emotionally with somebody who is not a good person for you to bond with. And that's happened to me lots of times. Like I say that women should be more choosy and that casual sex is not good for women now as somebody like you, as you just said, who had a lot of casual sex when I was younger. You know, I say this from experience. (laughs) Um, Like casual sex, I think is not sexually satisfying for women, but it's also dangerous in other ways. Um, including emotionally dangerous, I think. Absolutely. It's emotionally dangerous. Um, It's also, it clouds your perception, you know, when you have sex and that those, that biochemical psycho spiritual bonding happens, you, you might miss a lot of warning signs that this is a dangerous creep. I think, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm, I want to, bring back like Victorian courting rituals. But I I do think it's good to have a baseline um, knowledge of who somebody is before you have sex with him. You know, it's good to get to know him first because a lot of women end up in very dangerous situations. Um, You know, I like Julia Long says that heterosexuality is a death sentence to, to many, many women that intimate partner violence is the leading cause of, of death of women of reproductive age. And once you're already sexually entangled with someone, it's really hard to get clear and disentangle and you might be in a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, and we're in a, a more challenging situation in some ways today, I think, because we've normalized dating through apps. So you're re- you really are missing those cues, those subtle cues, you know, those those red flags that you would feel in your gut, as it were, um, that you cannot get from your phone. No, no. And we're missing like the social aspect too of, you know, you're hanging out with your friends with this guy, you know, it's, it's, there, there's so many, our society is so fragmented and crazy right now. Um, there, there are so many layers of it. Um, yeah. And then I think, you know, we've both talked about the way that the um, overturning of Roe versus Wade is inevitably going to be used by the pharmaceutical industry to push more birth control on women. Right. So I would caution feminists from uh, promoting that on the behalf of Big Pharma, because I do not believe pharmaceutical birth control is is good for women overall. I don't think it should be illegal. I think, and I I don't judge anyone who's, who's using pharmaceutical birth control, but just from a purely medical perspective, it's inducing endocrine disruption and it comes at a big cost for the body. And I also think like these long-term contraception methods like Depo-Provera and um, the, the implants and the IUDs, if you have a contraception failure, you're much more likely to be pretty far along into the pregnancy before you figure out you're pregnant because those methods stop you from having a period and they, they dissociate us from our bodies. And then you're likely 
if the if the rare case those contraceptive methods fail, you might be 20 weeks before you figure it out because all of those contraceptive methods also make you gain a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, okay, and and finally, what would you tell a woman who has an unwanted pregnancy who's now living in a state where they've made abortion illegal? What should she do? Ugh. I just feel like crying thinking about it. Um, I'd say call one of the the help organizations to try to travel out of states. Um, I um, or research misoprostol, and if you're if you're early in the pregnancy, try to get someone to send you misoprostol to you. There's women on women on waves. Women on web, they will send abortion pills to women in the United States in areas where abortion is illegal. There's um, the Gynuity Project. They've got excellent information on how to save misoprostol for abortion. Um, you know, really, you've got to educate yourself and, and take it into your own hands. If she is going to do that, you know, find a friend And then because we also live in surveillance culture, and we've certainly learned over the last two and a half years that people want to snitch on each other and turn each other in, be very careful about who you talk to about it in your community. Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking with me about this. Um, I really appreciate your insight and advice, and I've learned so much from you about all of these issues over the years. So I really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm glad to bring your knowledge and voice to the feminist current audience once again. Thanks so much for having me on Megan. And thanks for all you do. Okay. Take care. You too. Thanks. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to feminist current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com. Tweet at us at feministcurrent or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current Podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Spotify, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Feminist Current is produced and hosted by myself, Megan Murphy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.